I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. On this episode of GDP, the Global Development Primer podcast, we're very happy to have Dr. Ryan Hoskins join us today. Dr. Hoskins is an emergency medicine physician. He's a certified physician who works part-time at Langley Memorial Emergency Room and spends a week almost every month doing rural ER medicine locums in British Columbia and in the Northwest Territories. Also a professor of global health at the University of British Columbia and a longtime friend of mine, Dr. Ryan Hoskins is joining us here on GDP. Dr. Hoskins, welcome to GDP. Hey, Bob. Thanks very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to, to chat again after so many years. It's been many years, and, and those years have taken us on journeys from the uh, the sandy shores of Cuba to, you know, the the, the, the not-so-sandy shores of Nunavut. So it's uh, it's great to to hear you back, even if it's on a socially distanced podcast, but, uh, <laughs> but you, sir, have, have been keeping busy as a, uh, as a physician and as a prof of global health. Could you just give our, uh, our listeners just a sense of, of what, uh, what keeps you busy? Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I do do, uh, emerge medicine. Um, uh, I find that, uh, still a fascinating, area in terms of uh, the, the bit of the adrenaline it gives you a bit of the, uh, the, the never know what's going to walk in the door kind of scenario. Um, and uh, I don't, I don't do so much at Langley. I do a little bit at Nanaimo now and Squamish. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I've uh, managed to kind of branch out uh, a bit more into uh, doing research in global health and, and trying to, to grab every opportunity for, uh, to pick out poor, innocent people to listen to my rants. Uh, and this, by the way, was an excellent opportunity. So thank you, Bob. Um, and, <laughs> and, and so I have uh, managed to help teach a, a, f- a few courses, uh, undergrad courses at UBC. And I've gotten involved in some research uh, with the University of Washington, focusing on uh, a couple things. Uh, one is the disease control priorities, which is this project where they're trying to measure cost effectiveness of all sorts of uh, health interventions in very low income settings, but mm, kind of moving on away from just talking about vaccinations uh, and, and maternal health and, and looking at uh, like treatment for non-communicable conditions, like specifically actually looking at like uh, emergency medicine interventions and, and kind of like there's an accumulation of data now, as you're well aware, you know, moving into the, um, uh, a phase of global health of non-communal conditions where we're really, if we look at, uh, you know, uh, uh, quality adjusted life years uh, uh, saved and prevented, um, you know, there is quite a strong case to be putting money into things like emergency rooms, into things like hospitals, into things like cancer care. And it's, it, but, but traditionally the focus of course has been more on, on purely the prevention part. Um, and so the disease control priority is really just trying to accumulate some good economic evidence showing that and, and leading some good policy. Um, a special interest area of mine is rheumatic heart disease uh, as well. Uh, it's a condition that a lot of people might not be too familiar with uh, in, in high-income countries, uh, although it used to be uh, pretty ubiquitous until the 1950s. Uh, we, um, 
but it disappeared in high income countries with the exception actually of uh, some indigenous communities, um, more so in Australia and New Zealand and South Pacific, but a, a few instances in North America. Right. Um, well, it uh, remains endemic in, in largely in, in sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Asia. And, and what it is, is it's, you know, in North America, when you come in with a strep throat, the consequences of that are, are very little. Uh, but if you're in a low-income setting, um, owing uh, to a couple of reasons that we're, we're not entirely sure about, it, it can lead to devastating uh, changes to your heart valves, which can cause heart failure. And, and basically, it can cause even children to, to die of heart failure. It's a, it's a devastating condition. And about 300,000 people die prematurely around the world from it. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a kind of a fascinating uh, disease be, because it, it was eliminated here. And we probably over-treat it in terms of what we do with strep throat and sore throats when people come into to primary care offices in North America. And yet at the same time, it's, it's profoundly neglected in low income settings. So it, it's, it's for me that I find that fascinating, mm-hmm. the, the resource uh, inequity on that one. Well, Dr. Hoskin, that's a, you know, what you do is, is important and fascinating and needed. And I hope that we can have you back routinely as a repeat offender on, on GDP to talk <laughs> about some of these, these great projects in detail. But as it is your, your first time on the, on the podcast, the, the topic that that really think underlines what it is you do and and sort of ties us together as you know in solidarity on this is these really wicked healthcare inequalities. So just like you said, it's there are diseases that are, you know, science knows how to how to address, sometimes overly address. And then there are parts of the world where regardless of the existence of said medical knowledge, you know, there's there's these inequalities that needlessly occur, and uh, this is something that, in my mind, is at the heart of global health. Just how do we continue to live in a world with extreme inequalities? And I think the pandemic is something that kind of showed the well, 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 the naked face of what global health is. We we talk very, uh, uh, you know, affectionately about wanting to create healthcare for all and solidarity. But when emergencies arise, or if it's a pandemic, or if it's uh, you know a consequence of of natural disaster or whatever it is, the system in place to see those inequalities furthered seems to be maintained. And the one issue that I'm curious about to get your thoughts on uh, would be now that we are. Some people say we're you know just getting ready to go into an uptick of the fourth wave of COVID. Others say we've we've hit the crescendo and now it's about getting out of this thing altogether. But when it comes to vaccines that are now exist, uh, they know how to deal with, with the virus through vaccination, certain vaccines give certain people now great opportunities over others to, to travel, to, you know, to bear certain work and responsibilities. And others are still waiting for their very first jab. Um, We're now seeing vaccines become more important than passports to enter countries. Uh, The United States, for example, is, is, you know, is listing four vaccines that people need to have upon entry. Otherwise they have to go into self-isolation. And even those who have mixed vaccines, uh, we're not even sure if they're going to be welcomed in or not. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, we've now entered an era where, the the 
the vaccine is now really the new the new passport yeah well so so a few things on that yeah i, I mean first of all as you say like we, we don't know where this covid's going right and as you say we're, you're hearing many different stories along the way that uh you know it, it, it's or as they said in, in my uh, home province uh, of Alberta, it's over <laughs> back in July, yep. right? May have uh, jumped the shark on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I think it, it takes an extraordinary uh, gall at this point in time for anybody, including the most authoritative public health people, to, to predict exactly where we got. I, I think the only thing... We, we got to take at this point in time is that we don't know exactly yeah. what's going to happen. And um, so, but it is a very interesting tour that it's taken uh, because, you know, initially something that I don't think we talked about much because it was a bit shocking and a bit confusing for everyone is, is that initially COVID actually, I think, challenged global health and turned it on its head because where we were getting the first cases was actually the elite of the elite, yes. right? As as we, you know, you go back to that time, it was there was that ski resort in Switzerland that kind of was a nidus for a whole bunch of infections. That's right. It was and then prime who, ministers and their their spouses and presidents and kings and queens and people exactly. who uh, eat very fancy meals, fancier than we do. Exactly. It, it, it was the ulterior, uh, alternate universe of, of uh, global health, right, where, where the, the most privileged were being impacted and the least privileged, to everyone's shock, um, were, were not being impacted initially. And, you know, I mean, I, I know one colleague of mine in Kenya was telling the story that there was almost like a, a silver lining to that, that uh, in, in his country, um, for the first time, some of these political elites uh, had to use the local healthcare system because because uh border crossings were eliminated mm -hmm. right and so you know he thought it was actually a good thing that they're they're kind of forced to to actually see and use and, and maybe do something good uh for kenya as opposed to heading off to europe or saudi arabia where they traditionally went to and so um yeah i mean i mean it has been uh an interesting tour in that way um and but then obviously uh you know it, it's hit different parts of the world in, in different places at different times and you know I, i'd say the the olympics may have been one of the the grossest uh, manifestations of how the world just refuses at any moment to shake its head and, and actually take a global view because as much as tokyo may have claimed that they uh you know were setting up these strategies to mitigate any kind of risk the real risk that was going on, I, I think, was that by, by August of last summer, um, in most or many parts of Asia and in North America, th there was kind of a de facto sense that, OK, we've got this thing licked and, and now it's just a case of getting vaccinations and and going from there. But but the real challenge to Tokyo was the Olympics is the whole world coming. Mm -hmm. Right. And that means India and that means sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and it means South America and what was going on and what continues to go on are, are, you know, new, devastating and rampant waves of different parts of the world at a at a chronology that we can't really clearly predict. No. And 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 so what I'm saying is that, um, you know, it was so offensive 
to claim that it was a safe moment. I mean, it literally wasn't even safe in Tokyo. We know that, right? I mean, they already, uh, but in addition, COVID was going to come in because not all these elite athletes actually train in high income countries. They actually, some of them actually do train in their countries. And so I, I just find it, you know, as a great example, you don't have to look forward, of course, as we know, to find these examples of ignorance, but, but that one, I think really uh, was, was pretty sharp, you know, you know, claiming at once at once that the Olympics is truly a global event and then claiming that we're safe in COVID to, to be doing that because as far as we're concerned, the rich countries are cool. Right. right. So, um, so yeah, uh, I think, you know, this question of different inequities and, and how we're responding to this, uh, Obviously, uh, you know, it, it, it's hit in many different ways. Um, the, yeah, I, I, I mean, mean, there's, the, there's the one stat that, that I could, I think what, mm-hmm. what, what we could, we could look at would be mm-hmm. yet right now, today, at the beginning of October, 2021, mm-hmm. 45.4% of the world population has received at least one dose of a COVID-19 mm-hmm. vaccine. 6.27 billion doses have been administered have, have been given globally and 27.97 million are now administered each day but only mm-hmm. 2.3% of people in low income countries have received at least one dose so you know we get this scenario now where there's there's billions of doses you've got countries like Canada, where we're just, we're at the cusp of that very important 75% threshold. The U.S. had this huge uh, uh, initial out-the-gate vaccination, and now it's sort mm-hmm. of stalled at around 56%. And mm-hmm. other countries are, are you know, on their way to 75%, if not past mm-hmm. it. But there's mm-hmm. still pretty much the entire continent of Africa and parts mm-hmm. of Asia where the vaccine rates are still in the single digits. And, yeah. you know, what, what right there, it just shows that there, there wasn't attention to any sort of social justice uh, going on. And now we're into, a, there's two other factors that are laying into this. And the, and the first is that at a time when you've got uh, hundreds of millions of people without their first jab, there's now discussion in parts of North America to give now boosters to to those who are here. Uh, the government of Quebec was very open about it. They said, "Yeah, sure, we will give uh, uh, you know a second round of Moderna or Pfizer to anyone who initially received AstraZeneca, so that you're guaranteed to have, be able to travel." And meanwhile, some of those places people may want to travel to can't even get access to these these vaccines and. The other issue is that the big four vaccines that are in existence aren't the only game in town. We we talk about mm. uh, you know the the Astra uh, Zeneca vaccine, some of the the controversies mm. around it. Um, there were there were uh, jurisdictions in North America, Canada in particular, that were using mm. it and then said, "No, we're not going to go near it anymore." And then you've got Pfizer, you've got Moderna, and then you've got uh, Johnson & Johnson. But then there's others that are that are out there as well that are not necessarily approved by Canada or the, the CDC in the States. You've got the ones that have been developed in Russia, the, the, the Abdallah one that was developed in Cuba. They're starting to mm-hmm. do uh, pediatric doses for and others. I mean, there's mm-hmm. about a good, 
uh, 12 or 15 of, of these other vaccines that are out there. And mm -hmm. if someone is vaccinated with one of those that are not part of the big four, their ability to, to travel and have that free movement is now eliminated as well. And I guess what I'm really worried about here is that are we getting into an era where we're starting to divide the world based not just on the passport in your back pocket, but the type of vaccine that you've received? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is this, yeah. is this something that as a, as a physician, a global health prof, that it, it worries you in any way? Well, okay, a couple of things. I wanna, um, so yeah, and there's another indicator. So, so uh, COVAX, right, as you're, you're aware, it was the, the, uh, the international effort uh, led by Gavi to, to coalesce a bunch of vaccines for the 92 uh, lowest income countries in the world. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you said that stat that less than 2% are vaccinated in low-income countries. Well, it's interesting. COVAX's goal after, goal, like they will achieve success after two years, is um, if they get 20% uh, of people vaccinated in these countries. 20. Uh, first of all, 3% getting healthcare workers, and then 17% getting what they estimate to be uh, the population of over 65 people. So that, that will be their success. And that's kind of interesting because that was considered success in January of 2021 in high income countries, but we've realized how it's not even remotely successful, uh, really now, right? Yeah. Um, not only for um, uh, preventing uh, uh, waves from coming, but, um, but in terms of uh, holding off of variants. So you know, I you know again, I just I think it, even even the more um, optimistic uh, international efforts uh, aren't aren't really uh, you know setting the bar really that high, and that's kind of scary. Um, yeah, in terms of so, you know, Bob, I gotta say, what in terms of you know, and again back to that comment about how it was the elite that got uh, affected first by this. Uh, I'm gonna go off on a tangent a bit here, just because can't uh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, two, one quick tangent, and then I want to get back to uh, uh, Abdella's vaccine um, and, and Sputnik V. Um, the, you know, we, we may be in a world where traveling, I mean, traveling is a luxury, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, you know, with climate change and such, you know, maybe this is kind of highlighting that a bit. And yes, uh, it, it's, uh, there is an inequality, but we're talking about an inequality of, of people that can afford to travel in the first place. Right. And, uh, so it's an interesting inequality. Um, and, you know, maybe one of the, uh, realities of this is people aren't going to be traveling as much anyway. And, and, and maybe that is a good thing. Uh, I certainly have tried to reflect on that a bit uh, from my own, uh, career. But, um, but yeah, that, uh, that's just food for thought on that. Uh, not, not that it makes it any better, but, you know, in this debate of inequalities, like I say, this isn't, I think by definition is inequality of, of at least people that have relative resources. Now, as for um, uh, Cuba's vaccine, so fascinating, fascinating. So, you know, as you well know, in fact, but let's give you credit. You're probably the world's greatest authority on this and talking about where, where Cuba 
punches beyond its weight in terms of uh, healthcare. Um, not surprising that they leapt on uh, using their own domestic scientists to uh, develop uh, something to combat uh, COVID and got on it early. Um, you know, I, uh, I had the privilege of uh, being down in Cuba uh, about five years ago and uh, interviewed um, uh, some, of the, some of the scientists that had worked on um, Heberprop P, um, which is this um, <clears throat> medication that basically is used for diabetic ulcers. Diabetic ulcers are things that can happen to people that have diabetes and very often lead to people uh, losing limbs, getting amputations and such. Um, and, and they'd um, done some, some research on a product that could help stall this. Um, and, it, and as with many things in Cuba, and it, it be, we'll see what you have to say about this, but it, it, it's so interesting because part of it is absolutely real, is absolutely objectively true. But the way it's presented um, often doesn't adhere to what the the rest of the world's rules are in terms of, for instance, straightforward phase three trials. Um, and uh, and so it makes it difficult. But but this product uh, has been brought up for phase three trials in Spain. And, and there's also been a, a lung cancer drug, uh, which they're um, a partner at Roswell uh, in, in New York State, which Roswell is one of the leading uh, cancer research in the United States, um, is doing research on. And so my point is, there is very legitimate stuff. Um, sorry, that's my dog there. Uh, coming from uh, coming from Cuba, but it 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 um, it 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 uh, it sometimes that doesn't like like I say adhere to the same uh, kind of uh, customs and protocols in terms of uh, what what North America likes to call uh, evidence based uh, medicine, and so it becomes difficult for the for, for the rest of the world to uh, to kind of buy into it, but but. Bob, as you know well, I mean, there's so much politics mm-hmm. to this, right? And and sometimes it's really difficult to tease out the what's politics and and what is science, right? Yeah. So for so let me just comment on uh, the Abdella. So as as you know, like last week, they they actually started um, exporting it to Venezuela and to Vietnam. And I was looking at some headlines on that, and so. Uh, Al Jazeera, right, which is, I would say, probably uh, a more kind of, it, it's certainly outside the realm of the um, uh, major newspapers, uh, you know, that, that North Americans read. Uh, I'll just leave it at that about <laughs> uh, in terms of where its slant comes from. But, but their headline was, Cuba begins commercial exports of its COVID-19 vaccine. That's it. A kind of objective thing and it talks about how it's going to Vietnam, Venezuela. Um, but the headline from Reuters on this was Venezuelan Academy of Medicine expresses concern over use of Cuban vaccine. Like, <laughs> leap right to the like, right. This isn't going to work. Right. right. <laughs> um, and uh, and then uh, in the Wall Street Journal, it was Venezuela deploys Cuban homemade vaccine. You know, <laughs> like it was made homemade in a kitchen or something. Kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so yeah, I mean, there, there totally is um, yeah, politics to how that's being split and how it's being presented. That being said, so, so with this vaccine, uh, my understanding and reading things is Cuba hasn't provided preprints to the World Health Organization. It it hasn't provided the the, the level of um, a scrutiny 
that the World Health Organization expects yeah. for in order to give approval for it. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, that, and I think, you know, fair enough, that, that has to be matched. Yep. But at the same time, and I, and I don't think it's conspiracy of, of the World Health Organization or other groups to, to stop that from happening. Um, but, um, but, but yeah, but there's definitely slants to this. And, and sorry, it's not only your name. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, when you, when you see something like this where they're withholding uh, the testing, I mean, it's not like that testing is unable to be, to be done in Cuba or with partners. It's just sort of an unwillingness and it almost sounds like a mistrust. And I think one of the, the issues that Cuba's very, hesitant from its history of working international collaborations is that they come forward with the recipe and their partners kind of take it and run. Um, mm. And I think there's, there's enough economic pressure on Cuba right now to not want to let control, let go control of anything. And if, and if Abdallah is going to be uh, something that will be, you know, used widely across the global South uh, is shown that it could be as effective or, or whatever it is to the other to the other major vaccines. There's there's a fear of losing control, uh, and I mm -hmm. think that is something that makes it very difficult when you see these collaborations come up with Cuba. And again, part of it is because there there's been some real underhanded stuff done to Cuba, especially in its medical sector and mm -hmm. in its uh, research and development sector by. The outside, a lot of the policies that the U.S. has put forward over decades have made it very mm -hmm. difficult to be a practicing physician or scientist in, in Cuba. Mm -hmm. So there is that mistrust. But at the same time, you know, to to build that trust and create that assurance going forward, that is, uh, you know, it, that's a two way street. Everyone has to really mm -hmm. have a lot of faith in each other. So I, I wonder if that's also mm -hmm. factored into why there's some hesitancy to, to provide that material. Yeah, and I think that's true. Um, and then on the other hand, I think, uh, and this is a really interesting thing, I think, is that there's like, I think there tends to be a disbelief from the West that Cuba or Russia or India mm. could really be doing something useful. Yep. Right. Maybe India's given a little more leeway these days because it really, you know, it is the pharmaceutical, uh, the pharmacy to the world and it has some well-developed. Yep. Uh, internal research now, but you see, but, I think right there, right, right there, Dr. Hoskins is a big issue that there's now mistrust coming into the world during and what will be post COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, mm -hmm. If it's you know we're we're now seeing the world being divided in a way about what brand of vaccine people people have in them physically, and mm -hmm. is that trustworthy? Um, right now we're seeing mm -hmm. with the passports roll out in North America, every jurisdiction has its own app. But if you come into the jurisdiction and you don't have that app because you were vaccinated abroad or you're vaccinated somewhere else that the app doesn't recognize, you then have to get in a situation with every retailer or uh, ticket mm -hmm. usher or hotel clerk uh, about your own personal story as to why you are vaccinated and should participate in society. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've seen the race to get these vaccines up and going, the, the, the different mm -hmm. technologies, there's been the viral vectors, the mRNA mm -hmm. ones, and I believe Abdallah is a protein subunit vaccine, mm -hmm. and all these different ways of, of trying to go at this issue, and all very new, like mRNA was 
something that I don't think was planned for a virus. It was like this, this might work if we, you know, spend more time mm -hmm. with lipids as opposed to proteins and we'll, we'll go from there. But, you know, I, and I think that the, the, I hope that we're not getting into an era where nationalisms start to rise up and, and load in these assumptions that, oh, Cuba couldn't produce a vaccine. So what's the point? Or somebody, uh, from Russia has the, the, you know, the Sputnik vaccine. So thereby mm -hmm. it must be faulty. And mm -hmm. it seems at a time when you've got this global phenomena that conjoins everybody, everyone's life has been impacted by this, the ability to find further divisions in society and further myths and, and just, you know, rotten knowledge about, about this all around just seems to be growing. If you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and kind of taking an angle from that, I mean, part of the disbelief isn't uh, per se that it's Cuba and, uh, you know, Cuba has been cast as an enemy in the past. I think part of the disbelief is that from a North American perspective and a European perspective, we have our patent system, our patent system, which provides economic incentives for uh, farm school research and for uh, gaining revenue from farm school. The, the, the idea that someone could work outside that system, the idea that you could effectively produce something outside that system is actually inconceivable at this point. Yeah. And I think that actually feeds in to part of the disbelief. Mm -hmm. um, be, because, I mean, this is the Cuban story, right? It's time and time again from, from back in 1959 uh, to, to when, um, you know, they started sending doctors abroad and when they, they set up the Medical School of the Americas. Um, it continually gets cast as like th this is this is just uh, you know health diplomacy, mm -hmm. and and certainly part of it is. But but on the other hand, it's very very real, yeah. and it's been objectively, as you well know, it's been objectively yeah. determined to be very very real in terms of the assistance they provided everywhere from West Africa to um, to Haiti uh, to parts of South America, and 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 and, and but but it's it's uh, it's almost. Pavlovich. Sorry about that. It's all good. Um, we, we, we're, this is a pet-friendly uh, podcast. <laughs> She's getting excited with this Cuban talk. I tell you. Um, and where I'm going with it. And, and, and um, so here's the thing, though. I, I think about, I was just looking this up uh, the other day, too, that, again, we, we have this kind of neoliberal commercial concept that you have to have money involved in pharmaceutical, and, and, and that's the only incentive that can get things done. But, you know, you go back um, to um, uh, Joseph Salk and, and the polio vaccine, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, you know, he famously uh, refused to patent it. And, and he actually, I'm just reading, he, he died relatively poor. Uh, I mean, relatively poor financially, but relatively happy, I'm sure, with his contribution in life. Um, and and, and it, because at that time, in the, in the mid 1950s, and, and really, I would say probably until the last 20 years, there, there is an ethos amongst researchers, right? That they're not purely driven by money. They, they really do want to get things done. They really do want to change the world. They really want to help people. And, and that, you know, that is something that Cuba promotes in terms of work, the, the types of things that they've done internationally and the types of research they've done on, on like I say, uh, lung cancer medications and, and Haberprop. And like I say, I, I, I think North Americans find it unbelievable that like someone would actually just do this because it's actually 
a good thing and, and that and that you can have researchers do high quality research just because they really like to do it. Right. But there actually was a time in North America, Banting and Best, you know, back in 1924, they didn't patent anything. Um, Fleming and Flory with, with penicillin, they didn't patent anything, right? right? All these people knew that they were dedicated researchers. And um, uh, so, so th- there is a way uh, to capture this. There, there, there certainly was a way in, in, in North American and Western history uh, to, to do this research without having money as, as the carrot to do it. Yeah. And, 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 and there is a way today. And um, so, I, you know, I really think that's something that, that we have to work on too. I mean, that gets into discussion of how you can rearrange incentives and, and, and patents and such. And I, and I think what we currently have is, is really just the, um, the end game of what a, a few uh, pharmaceutical company managers, mostly premised out of Washington, D.C., have managed to manipulate what the, what, what the World Trade Organization has determined as the rules of the game. But, but you know, I think Adam Smith would be rolling in his grave. Uh, even Adam Smith would be rolling in his grave if you he heard, because, I mean, he was fighting against patents when he wrote Wealth of Nations, right? That's right. Um, and, you know, uh, other things like, like prizes, for instance, which is essentially what the early COVID vaccines were. There was these assurances, we're going to buy this much. It's like the equivalent of a prize. Like that, that actually... Um, did something instead of just allowing pharmaceutical companies to to pick the topics and pick the ways they're going to do them. What what I'm saying is that I think I think Cuba and Russia uh, challenge the notion that that just doing it for money and 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 the system that we've set up is the only way to do it. And and we've become so inured to it that we've accepted that this is normalization and 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 that you couldn't possibly have. Um, you know, people motivated by uh, just trying to do it. And, and you, you can't. And I'm not saying you can only have that. Certainly you have to partner up and you have to, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, uh, scale up and, and you're going to need industry with that. But but uh, but it is possible. What, what Cuba is doing is is possible and what Russia was doing. Public. And yeah, talking about the Sputnik 5, too. You know, you're right. That was totally dismissed. Uh, at first, but then in in like in like January of of 2021, there was a, a big article in the Lancet that was like, you know, this is actually kind of workable. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and, and there, there, there's <laughs> bizarre things though. I mean, with with the the history of of the Sputnik Five. So I mean, straight up here, back to your your point though about you know working in this world where you know big profit isn't always the lead factor. One of the very real challenges that have maybe come alongside that ethos, especially in Cuba this past year, that were one of the factors that led to the to the July fifteenth uh, riots and protests, mm-hmm. uh, was that people were you know there's Cuba that's in, you know engineered this vaccine that's uh, was in cooperation with other other vaccine uh, attempts, uh, partnerships with Venezuela with Iran, and here they are in a state where they've got this knowledge and ability to, to move forward with it, but they weren't actually able to vaccinate their own people at the same time. And, you know, while this uh, vaccine was rolling out in Cuba, the vaccine rate itself was at like nine, 10%. Even now in October, it's just gone above 44%. Uh, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, in Russia, you're looking at a country there that's got one of the highest vaccine hesitancy rates in the world. Somewhere around, uh, geez, what is, what, is it, what is it now? Like 29% are fully vaccinated. 
And really? uh, but yet it was it was one of the first places to actually get the vaccine up and going. They haven't changed the product at all. And it seems to, as you say, be very effective. Well, I think it's been effective until Delta's come around. Yeah. And there's a big, a big question. Yeah. And so whether it works and oh. uh, to be fair, I think with the Russian story, that may reflect the lack of trust of the Russians with the Russian government. Well, I think that's the bigger issue, right? <laughs> and and in the, in the case that in Cuba, there there's frustration uh, that comes up from people who just say, we would like more things. Uh, it, sometimes there aren't a lot of things in Cuba and it gets frustrating to be consistently put up against it in a time of pandemic when, you know, you've got uh, cruise ships that are leaving Miami, uh, you know, maybe vaccinated, maybe not. And, you know, there's this, this sort of heightened isolation, that heightened bubble uh, because the domestic production just can't keep up with demand. That's frustrating. And then yes, in Russia, you do have brutal mistrust between people and the government and then more globally, you've now got international mistrust on many levels. And I, I think, again, uh, it's something that, that is going to see these inequalities stay with us for a bit. And uh, if anything, add another layer to the conversation where now we are identifying each other by what's in our blood, not just the, the documents in our back pocket anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh... so Dr. Hoskins, I, I'm pretty sure we could uh, we keep chatting for a long time and I hope that we will continue to keep chatting for a long time on many, many topics. But uh, I do want to thank you very much for, for taking the time to share your thoughts and experience and, uh, and ideas about this, uh, this theme about global inequalities in the era of global vaccines. Well, thanks very much for the invitation, Bob. I look forward to coming back and uh, we'll have more interesting chats. We definitely will. And we've been joined today by by Dr. Ryan Hoskins, uh, admired by children and animals alike, and <laughs> just an all-around good guy. Always a pleasure to have him join us on GDP. GDP.